Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Shattering Superstructure. In this episode, we have Omid Arabian. That's right, he shares the same last name as me, and what are the odds, considering it's such a unique last name? Uh, even cooler is that we share different ethnic backgrounds, um, but essentially our last names mean the same thing. Uh, from Arabia. So I speak with Mr. Arabian about his translations of Rumi. He has several books published and all of them aim to translate Rumi in a more accurate way as uh, so often we see quotes that are translations of translations. He also has a center for teaching called Universal, where uh, he gives lectures to both adults and children on mysticism so they can learn more about Rumi and other famous philosophers, uh, such as Hafez. He has a new book coming out, an upcoming uh, children's book, which would be his second children's book that essentially aims to give a more palatable um, introduction for children as well uh, by using illustrations and stories uh, that children can follow easily um, based on Rumi's poems. Needless to say, Rumi was about 800 years ahead of his time um, and it was fascinating to also uh, speak with uh, Omid about you know our, our mutual passion for film you know, what some of his favorite films are, what some of my favorite films are, and also using film as an allegory for both mysticism as well as uh, ideology and, you know, the, the various films that uphold ideology and the various films that challenge it. Um, and I think Omid does a wonderful job of connecting so much um, of the entertainment we consume to Rumi's teachings and mysticism. It is a fascinating conversation. Um, it's long, but it's well worth a listen. Without further ado, here's the episode. Thanks for listening. love to hear i guess first more about the work you do at the, the universal center um that really intrigued me um and you know mysticism is is i think still something that uh at least the western world um hasn't either fully embraced or there's just not enough of it 
out there. And also, you know, we tend to be so stuck with uh, our own ways and, and, and traditions um, as well. So can you, can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, uh, Universal Center was something I started about uh, 14 years ago. And uh, the idea was to bring uh, kind of Eastern mysticism and particularly the mysticism of Rumi and Hafez, kind of the great Persian mystics, uh, to people who cannot directly kind of make contact with it, people who either don't speak Farsi at all or who don't have enough Farsi to kind of get into it directly. So um, I started just doing uh, classes, weekly classes, and reading the poems with the people that kind of came and reading them both in the original, just to get a sense of the music, but also reading them in translation in English. Uh, and I started doing my own translations of them because I really wanted to get a sense of uh, the original and, and stick really close to it because a lot of the translations of these works that are kind of more widely available um, don't strive to get, you know, uh, to keep close to the original material. They take a lot of liberties. So I try to just get them into an English translations that have a direct relationship with the original so that people can kind of uh, uh, feel just the ideas more than anything else. Maybe not so much the music of the poetry, but more important, the ideas that are in there. I think with mysticism, what's really important is to just try to feel what it is that these guys uh, were trying to impart upon us. And so I, uh, the idea of the classes were to help people kind of get acquainted with these ideas, get a vision of what these mystics were trying to show to us. And then more important than anything, to use these ideas to hopefully improve their own lives and just feel more of the joy, more of the ease, uh, more of the interconnection uh, with life and be able to kind of on a daily basis uh, just live the effects of that. So that was the original idea. And since then we've kind of grown from one class to uh, five or six weekly classes, uh, different levels, different kind of uh, uh, genres. Uh, we do a Hafez class, we do a Shahnameh class and we do workshops every so often, uh, one day workshops. And we also bring in kind of Western uh, mystics and philosophers to help kind of build an even, even more full uh, picture of uh, how this, uh, this world really looks and how it operates. We talk about people like Joseph Campbell, we read a little Plato and so on and so forth. So it's not just uh, the Persians, uh, it kind of goes beyond that a little bit as well. Is that a curiosity? Is it mostly in person or have you done online? So we've been in, we were in person for many years. We started uh, and we had a little space in Santa Monica first and then in Century City. I don't know if you know the LA area at all, but um, sure. yeah. And so we, we did everything in person until COVID. And so we moved uh, to Zoom right when COVID hits, like almost everybody. And I remember it was a really fun weekend teaching myself how to use Zoom. I had no idea. I'd never even heard about it. And literally from a Friday to a Monday, like the whole thing just really shipped it. Uh, but yeah, and we've been pretty much uh, online ever since, except for the 
one-day workshops that we do every month or every couple of months, we do those in person. So the weekly classes are uh, right now online and then the uh, uh, every so often ones are in person. On Instagram, I think I first heard of Rumi, but he just gets reposted. I think he's one of the most reposted uh, people yeah. uh, on Instagram, just getting quoted in the, these, I just found myself like, wow, there's that kind of turned me on to it um, of all things, social media, but there was, there were a lot of genuine, you know, people and uh, accounts that just wanted to share like what you're doing, his, yeah. his wisdom for people, for anyone, just yeah. leave it out in the open. So, um, yeah, I mean, the thing with social media as always is a two-sided coin, right? Yeah. It's great for exposing us to a lot of things and getting us curious and kind of giving us a sense or a little taste of what things are like. But then if we just rely on that for, you know, the rest of the process, it just becomes really just morsels upon morsels upon morsels and we never get past kind of the first layer of things. So I right. like, yeah, I like the fact that, you know, uh, with all of these uh, uh, different platforms, people are getting just uh, introduced to Rumi, for example, but I'm a little bit, yeah, just kind of not so happy that a lot of people just leave it at that. Again, it's better than nothing, but it's just, there's so much more to it. And the other thing about it is that um, a lot of the quotes that kind of go around uh, are great, but they're ultimately uh, translations of translations of translations, and they don't really bear a direct resemblance after a while to the original stuff. So it's just so much nicer to come to the original and really get uh, a direct feel as much as possible of what is being said. Um, I credit, there's a, there's a gentleman named Coleman Barks who uh, over the last 40 years or so has done a lot of translations of Rumi and really gets a lot of credit for bringing uh, Rumi to the public kind of awareness in this country. And I think just he's, he's an amazing man in many, many different ways. I think he's in his 80s now. Uh, at the same time, he does not actually speak or read or write Farsi. So okay. um, his translations, as great as they are, they're translations of translations, right? Mm -hmm. And so again, that kind of removal uh, is something that in our classes, we try to kind of get around and again, bring people kind of as directly as possible to the original so that they can really see, because there's so much kind of depth and wisdom and beauty to these ideas. Um, and so much relevance ultimately. So just to leave it at, at one quote or a few quotes is just a little bit of a disservice to ourselves ultimately. So that's kind of that's how I feel about all of that. Do you know anything about the origins of the last name or is it just so that it's Armenian? In Armenian, it, I th it means son of Arabia. So yeah. at some point we must have... Uh, I guess, immigrated to that region from yeah. the Arabian Peninsula, or I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, there was like a small percentage of, of, I think on my dad's side, when I took my ancestry test, DNA test, uh -huh. um, that said it was, it was like a small percentage that said it was from that region, the Arabian Peninsula. And I was like, well, there you go. Uh, 
could have been thousands of years ago who knows yeah. but son of son of arabia yeah what about what about yours you you said uh, the meaning is the same it just means kind of of arabia or from arabia or kind of of arab origin and the story i was told and again it's so interesting that seems to be a theme uh i don't know how true it is or not but by the time it got to me the story was that uh my great grandfather uh, went from Iran to Iraq, which is an Arab country, and for Iranians was kind of regarded as part of the Arab world. He lived in Iraq and Baghdad for a number of years because he was a tradesman. He was kind of like a, a buyer and seller of goods. And so okay. he lived in Iraq for a while. And when he came back to Iran, they started calling him, oh, that Arab guy. His name was Moses. And they called him kind of Moses the Arab because he had come back from the Arab world for a while. So uh, that name stuck. And then eventually, about 100 years ago, when uh, people had to choose last names in Iran, because before that, there were no last names at all, you kind of were referred to by your first name, and then some kind of a, you know, signifier that would try to kind of make it more specific. So you would be like, Alex from San Francisco, Alex, the filmmaker from San Francisco, something like that, right? Okay. So in, in our case, when they were trying to pick a last name, the fact that the, the head of the family had been referred to as that Arab guy from uh, before that, so they picked kind of the name, the Arabians, so like the people from Arabia. So that kind of became the last name and it has kind of carried through ever since. So it's oh, a fun wow. thing. Yeah, and it's the, the other fun of ironic thing about it is that my family uh, uh, has always had kind of uh, uh, has has been uh, Jewish from many many generations. So okay. being Jewish and then being referred to as the Arabs has always <laughs> been a little bit of a contradiction for them. For me, it's just kind of a funny thing, and I don't really kind of practice the religion at all. But for them, it was always kind of a point of just conflict a little bit kind of the the jewish arabs <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah that's such a fascinating uh intersection and and story it's like it kind of reminds me i know this is totally not the same thing but you know the scene in godfather part two where it's like he has to basically come up with or they they name him for him rather it's like uh Oh, you're from you're from Corleone, uh, Sicilia. Okay, well, you're you're Vito Corleone. Then they just gave him a last name, and that was it. It's but that's how it kind of worked. I think it was so like almost arbitrary. They just whatever kind of was the identifier that was most available at that moment just became kind of the name. And I don't think anyone gave a lot of thought that to the fact that for many generations now this is going to be kind of this family name and and a, and a big kind of part of people's identity all the way forward so yeah it's just funny but that's a, that's a really good actually uh, connection to that scene I, I had forgotten about that you know i actually first i don't know if i told you this but i first came across um your name i think it was maybe seven stories publishing is mm -hmm. that one of the the ones that i think published your children's book right oh. um and you were you were you know making rumi's translations more i guess appealing to a younger demographic and i was like wait one of their i was going through their offers authors list and i was like 
wait a second, Arabian? There's no way. I mean, I think I, I searched on LinkedIn one time and there was one Arabian and I I didn't have a chance to connect with him, but I, it was it was bizarre. I think you're only like this, probably the second person with the last name that <laughs> that I've come across. And uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, it was interesting what you were saying that we both, it both kind of means the same thing, you know, in Armenian, it's son of Armenia. For you, it's of or or from, or son of Arabia, sorry. And in you, it's it's basically from or of Arabia, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> There's yeah. not that many of us in the world, but it's lovely when we find each other. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding. I haven't had a chance, unfortunately, to watch your your film, but I saw that it's online and it's on my list to to take a look at uh, the short one. Uh, oh, amazing! Yeah, oh, that, I appreciate that. Is that that's the uh, Dave's Dave's last night on last Earth, night. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a fun little thing. I kind of just did with like some of my closest friends on like no budget and we shot it over two days and it was like you know the, the thing that I got most out of it was just how fun it was to just create art with your friends yeah. uh, no matter what the outcome is going to be so it was just a good time yeah, yeah. and it was kind of that's really the big reason and you know yeah showing yourself that you don't need all this claptrap and the whole all the things that usually stop us from just getting to it you know like oh i don't have the budget i don't have the means i don't have the this i don't have the that what's going to happen to it why am i even doing this who's going to show it who's going to see it all these questions just kind of fall away when you decide that you know what i'm just doing it for the fun of it and i really am not so concerned about everything else and that's a beautiful thing Again, I don't want to, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a direct connection, but again, that reminds me of, of back, bringing it back to the subject of Rumi. The whole idea of life as play is such a big part of kind of the mystical point of view, you know, treating everything in your life as part of this playful kind of experience that you're here to have. And yes, things are serious, obviously, you know, genocide is serious, oppression is serious, bloodshed is serious. So on that level, we do treat it seriously and we do respond to it in very serious ways. But there is also a, a, a perspective or a level at which we can look at life and say, I'm also here to have fun. You know, like I am here as this, you know, embodiment of, of the divine or of source or of God or of whatever you want to call it, uh, here to just experience what it's like to be physical, to be a human, you know, or, or a, a member of the human species. And when you look at that uh, and you see that that's one way to look at life, it does become uh, kind of this wonderful playground, you know, that you can go around and just do things and experience things for no other reason than just the fact that you want to and you want to see how it is. You want to see, you know, what it's like. And that curiosity and that willingness to go and do things really takes over and really pushes away all the fears or a lot of the fears and hesitancies and all those notions that stop us from doing things and from exploring. I love that outlook because, uh, you know, it's, I think a lot of people 
can can find themselves uncomfortable when they're by themselves. They always have to be with people, but something like like you know mysticism can really just help you be content anywhere in any situation i feel like because you're you're kind of finding your own happiness within right not necessarily from an external source or or a drive to acquire something oh i need this or x y and z to to finally be happy and that's a that's a route i think a lot of people take and a lot of you know a predominant philosophy that's just self-refuting because if you're always chasing something well you're always wondering what's next what's next but if you approach it more of like a you're saying like a curiosity and everything's fun and um also have sort of a base um kind of be your own home base and find happiness within um, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I think that's a, an important part of it, right? Absolutely. Um, there's a line in one of the poems where Rumi says, um, the wine of lovers flows out from within their own heart. And that idea of wine being that agent that gives you that joy, that gives you that kind of freedom, that sense of uh, just, just, joy to be alive, that wine that gives you that sense really comes out of the core of your own being. And when you're in love with life, that joy just flows out of you. And you realize, as you say, that you don't need anyone else to give you happiness. You don't want, you don't need anyone else to complete you. You don't need anyone else to approve of you or give you that validation. uh, And that you can really just kind of access it right in the center of your own being and let that move you forward, let that sustain you uh, through all the experiences. It's not necessarily an easy thing to get to because there's lots and lots of layers that kind of pile up over that core of our being, especially Mm -hmm. as we go through life and we experience a lot of things, including, you know, losses and defeats and, you know, disappointments. And so all those things build up kind of our defenses and layers and layers sometimes of resentment and just all of these kind of, uh, Rumi calls it kind of grime and dust that collect over our hearts. And so the work of kind of clearing that away is not always easy work, especially after many years of it just piling up. So yeah. uh, even though it's nice to kind of, again, going back to social media, it's lovely to read this kind of these encouraging quotes that says, oh yeah, just find find it within you and go. Sure, <laughs> of course, right? And it sounds great, but what that kind of sometimes just kind of glosses over is the amount of work that kind of sometimes is necessary. And sometimes it's, it, it's even painful work because kind of peeling away all those layers can feel a little bit kind of uh, uh, painful, kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid can, you know? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, for for the mystics, it is the, the only truly worthwhile uh, work that we can do, laying kind of the foundation of everything else. So, right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Self self reflection and I think self self criticism. Uh, it can be very very tough, but 
ultimately it is uh at least in my experience you carry a lighter load after it you know it's going to be painful at first but uh you know you, you learn more about yourself and you learn how to adjust you learn how to uh, handle the next defeat or the next loss a little bit better and say, well, it was just a learning experience or what can I learn from it? Or what can I take out of it? I think. Um, as with everything in life, sitting, yeah. sitting with your own experiences as they come and even with your own feelings as they come and just asking them, all right, what are you here to show me? What are you here to teach me? What are you here to kind of help me uh, expand through? And just listening, uh, you know, to to the answers that come, and they always come, as you say, if we sit with genuine interest and curiosity, with our own feelings, experiences, thoughts, emotions, and and listening to what they have to say, uh, is an amazing kind of thing. Unfortunately, with modern day life, either we don't have the time or we don't give ourselves the time. And again, that's understandable too. A lot of us, or a lot of, at least a lot of human beings are just busy trying to just survive. And so finding the time to, to do that can become a luxury. But for each of us, to the extent that we can manage it, to the extent that we can find and kind of gift ourselves that time, uh, it's, an, it's really the best thing we can do for ourselves. And yes, self-critical for sure. You mentioned uh, kind of being critical of oneself, absolutely. But with genuine compassion for ourselves too, right? right? Because self-criticism can turn into a little bit of a self-destructive experience too uh, when we're so kind of serious and judgmental about it. But really having uh, that compassion first. And then, yeah, of course, critically having a look at ourselves and our own kind of lives is so 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 powerful as a transformative experience something that i wish for all of us absolutely uh, and bringing it to to the title of your podcast i really feel like that the idea of of just breaking through any kind of superstructure or any kind of limiting structure to begin with uh is in our is in our dna as human beings you know we we you know if we are here to experience at some point, you can't kind of be so subjected to these overwhelming structures and yet feel like you are, you know, evolving and moving forward and, and expanding. So if it is part of our kind of reason of, of existence to, to, to come here and to grow and to expand, at some point, we also have to realize that we brought with us the power to break through whatever it is that pushes back against that expansion, right? So you know, throughout history, and again, I'm not such a, a keen student of specific history, but in general, the patterns of history, I think, show us that, you know, there are times where it starts to become more and more and more limiting and oppressive. And those are usually followed by periods where just there's a lot of breakthroughs, there's a lot of shattering, there's a lot of breaking down the systems. And yeah, I mean, in, in general, I, I can agree with you that the last you know, 40 or so years, we've seen a lot of clampdowns and, and, and kind of greater uh, empowerment of, of capitalism and of all of these kinds of systems. But uh, I, I have no doubt that sooner or later, that pattern will reverse again, and we'll see more and more things kind of showing themselves as uh, uh, just 
more freeing kind of ways of, of living. And, and who's going to do that except us? I mean, there's not, there's not going to be some alien from the sky coming and, and freeing us from all that nonsense. We have to do it ourselves. And I exactly. always, always encourage to see that um, the thing to really kind of break through uh, first and foremost, kind of the fundamental thing that, that we humans need to break through is the very idea of who we are, right? And, and the illusion of, of, of who we are, right? The ideas that are actually false, right? The identities that are actually false. So the moment they say that, that, that we identify with just this, you know, physical, limited, uh, defined being called Omid or called Alex, that's the moment that we've fallen into the delusion. Uh, and and that's, that delusion starts to become the foundation for a lot of other things that we kind of build in our world, right? If I build a society or a system of government or anything that at its foundation has a false idea about who I am and who you are, right? Then that system by definition will have a big fault in it, a big fault line in it, a huge one, right? And eventually it will have to, to come down. But while we're living under that system that has been built on, upon a, a, an illusional foundation, a delusional foundation, we're going to have not an easy time of it. There's going to be a lot of not so pleasant things that are born out of that system, right? So the big kind of uh, basic thing is to break through this idea that I am over here and you're over there. And the only way that we can connect is to get on a Zoom call, right? The truth that, that, that we kind of lose and we have lost sight of is that you're not over there and I'm over here. We're actually all of us, one being in different bodies, in different kind of skins. And the moment that we access that truth, not externally, not because Rumi told us or or, or Oprah told us, or Chopra told us, but because I have kind of gone in and found that truth to be absolutely self-evident, right, within the core of my being, if I find it in that way, then it will inevitably change the way that I see things and the way that I function. And then the more of us that do that as a community, as a society, as a species, right, the more human beings come to this truth and break through that, break through that illusion, then things that we co-create together will also reflect that interconnectedness, will also reflect what they call the oneness. And that will create, even when we build structures and systems upon this truth, then there will be a lot more true, there will be a lot more functional, there will be a lot more kind of uh, uh, harmonious, ultimately, right? Because we're, we're building it not on the illusion of separation, but on the truth of interconnection and oneness. And that's an amazing kind of vision of, of, of humanity that I just get so kind of excited and I always get goosebumps to even think about that possibility and how I can kind of contribute to that both in my own life and in a more kind of expansive way. Yeah, well, that, that, that's a, incredible. You know, I haven't really thought of it from, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Mine's always been kind of like a political or social 
ideology, but that that really does make sense and kind of go hand in hand with what... yeah, the hand in hand. Sorry to interrupt, but that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Even even th that's another kind of example of how we tend to want to separate things and compartmentalize things, right? We say, well, there's the political, there's the social, and then there's the personal, and there's the spiritual, right? But yeah. all of these things are absolutely and utterly interconnected, and there is no way to kind of separate them, you know, and, and just kind of work with uh, one aspect without at least having a sense of what the other parts of the picture are, are about. And that's really the true kind of integration. If we're gonna talk about any kind of integration in human society, it has to also include this kind of integration where the social, the political, the personal, the spiritual, all of them kind of come together and really show us the entirety of the picture. Otherwise, we're still, whatever we create is still gonna be kind of missing, you know, a whole kind of layer or a whole segment. And by definition, it will not be fully functional altogether. Yeah, yeah it won't be complete. It won't operate yeah. correctly, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, when you come across, let's say a, a passage of Rumi where a word may not be, have uh, a translation in English because I mean I remember learning when I learned Italian there were idioms and words and sayings that just we didn't have in the English language and so um, there was like an adjacent translation but what do you do when you come across something that may not be a have a direct translation in English? Do you sort of pick the closest adjacent concept or word? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot, especially because it's not just the word itself, but then the word in a context that already is kind of a complex context, right? And then also a third layer of that is that these texts are not kind of simple texts of, you know, like a, like a manual or, or even a philosophical text. Poetry is written in a language that is very playful. And so words have double meanings and triple meanings and you know they get moved around where they're from where they normally ought to be in a sentence. So there's all of these different factors that work into trying to figure out how to transcribe or translate a word from one language to another in this case. And so, um, I, I do a lot of different things. Uh, sometimes when a word has a double meaning or a triple meaning, if I can manage it, I actually bring all two, all three of the meanings into the translation. I try to use three different words and kind of bring all of them in somewhere so that at least one gets a sense of the fullness uh, of the possibilities of what this original word might mean. Uh, sometimes what I try to do is kind of use you know a longer phrase and not insist on finding an exact word that corresponds to that word right mm -hmm. so uh if it ends up being you know a, a four-word translation to kind of give give a sense of that one word so be it and uh one of the things that i've done for myself is i have made always a priority uh to to get to give the sense of the word rather than to get a poetic translation right uh, I, I, I make that very secondary or even tertiary if it doesn't end up sounding all kind of flowery and, 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 and rhythmic and all of that, that's okay. 
because the, the key and the priority is to just get the meaning across. And so I respect the translators that make the floweriness and the, and the, and the musicality a priority. That's, that's a whole different kind of thing. But in my case, I just kind of try to make sure that the meanings are the most important. But yeah, it's, 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 it's work, but it's fun, like everything else. You kind of sit with the word, you kind of play with it, you kind of try four or five different options. And then whatever kind of gives the best sense of it, that's what I go with. I like how you say that, there, that there's a musicality to it because, I mean, this is poetry and there's, uh, it's art as yeah. well as, you know, philosophy, right? It's yeah. just, it's Absolutely. another art form Absolutely. that I think is, is, is beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the thing. I kind of try to encourage people to connect to the artistic aspect of it by going and learning Farsi if they can, or at least just listening to the original. I, I In the classes, I always read the poem first in the original Farsi so that that aspect, at least just the sound of it comes through. And that already is a beginning of a connection to that more artistic kind of uh, uh, aspect of it. And then if people get intrigued by that, I always say, you know what? Just go take a Farsi class, start there, and then that'll open a whole world to, as you say, this, this, this great and really massive kind of aspect of these poems, which is the literary aspect, which is the kind of uh, uh, playfulness of it all. Uh, Rumi is, is one thing, but then when you get to somebody like Hafez, I don't know how familiar you are with Hafez, but Hafez is kind of the other great the mystical poets of Iran and even more famous in Iran than Rumi, uh, Hafez is really known as just a master of linguistic playfulness. And, and so, you know, when you get into that, it's really like joyful to just find the ways that he plays with words, the way that the ways that he uses expressions to have all these layers of meaning. And, and just like any amazing poetry, it just becomes uh, this this exciting kind of universe to explore just on that level, even divorced from the mystical and and deeper meanings of it all. So you know it's 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 an amazing thing to, to think about. Ah, it's fascinating, and, and so you um, why is it that that Rumi has has become more popular now in American culture? Um, is that just happenstance people I, I think i think no i think there's there's as i said there's something uh, uh very special and meaningful about uh how this happened um to begin with again rumi is a little bit more accessible uh than somebody like hafez because his language is a little bit less complex okay. it's, it's complex but a little bit less rumi also left us a very vast body of work. So even if one poem is less accessible, less translatable, less clearly kind of directly understandable, one can always find the next one and the next one and the next one, right? There's like thousands of poems that he left, uh, plus, you know, uh, a work called Masnavi, which is a 25,000 verse uh, kind of epic poem filled with kind of stories and tales and all of that. So there's just a lot bigger body of work to get to. And then also, again, thanks to uh, people like Coleman Barks, um, the translations started to become 
uh, more available starting kind of in the late 70s and early 80s. And slowly but surely, kind of people found their way to these translations uh, in the West. And so it became uh, kind of more and more well-known. And again, I don't know if this is statistically true, but they say that uh, Rumi is the best-selling poet uh, uh, in the West. And I find that really fascinating. It's wow. true that, yeah, that's more people read Rumi than any other poet no disrespect to the other poets who i'm sure right. are amazing, but it's just a funny and interesting kind of uh, idea to think about yeah that's incredible <laughs> and then also because i think it speaks so much to things that we already like know deep down as i was saying like it just resonates literally right in a way that i think is so special and and the fact that it has become that he has become so well known and so popular to the extent that he has is really a testament to that resonance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as much as one can say, yeah, the mystical is so esoteric and so difficult to kind of get into and to understand, just the fact, as you say, that 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 we see this popularity and this kind of uh, 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 general interest in Rumi tells me that there's something in there that kind of just rings a bell for all of us in our hearts. And that's a beautiful thing also. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It, and so you said Hafez is more, is more popular in Iran. In Iran, yeah, everybody, there's, I don't think there's a household that doesn't have a copy of the collected works of Hafez. Um, Hafez uh, really left us with a much smaller uh, uh, amount of work. Rumi Hafez's poems are in the hundreds, I think it's like four or 500 poems in total. And in school, uh, they kind of start you early on uh, reading and even memorizing Hafez poems just as a way of getting you uh, more familiar with kind of the language of poetry. And because Hafez was such a master of that, it's almost like in, in English class, they make you read Shakespeare. In Iran, in, in Farsi class, you, you got to read some Hafez just to get a sense of where this language can go and how extremely beautiful it can, it can sound. So that's another reason he's more popular. And also there's a thing that we do called Fala Hafez, where we use uh, Hafez's poetry as kind of a way of fortune telling or kind of uh, getting guidance from, from, from a mystical kind of source, right? You kind of make, you hold a book of Hafez's poems and you make uh, a wish or you ask a question in your head of the universe. Uh, and then you kind of open the book randomly to one of the poems and you let the content of the poem kind of answer your question or help guide you to uh, wherever it is that you need guidance with. So that's a very, very common thing in Iran and in Iranian households. And that's probably another reason that Hafiz was better known or more kind of popular. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, it's it's. Do you plan on getting around to all of uh, Rumi's works? Is that even possible? In oh gosh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't plan on any of that. No, um, I I I go along as it comes. I translate the poems mostly for my classes, and then I end up publishing kind of collections of them every time that I feel like enough of them, enough of my translations have kind of piled up that they can make you know a good collection. So. 
I've, I've published three volumes of the translations and I don't know how many more I'll get to, but no, that's, uh, I don't think even one lifetime of full dedication is enough to try to get around to all of Ruby's works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine uh, yeah. over 500 poems, you said, it's just. Uh, no, uh, Ruby is about 4,000 plus, 4, yeah, oh. 4, 000, yeah, plus another work of 25,000 verses and, and more. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. massive. It's massive. It's Hafez. That's what yeah. Hafez is more manageable. And I think there are people who have done uh, a complete translation of okay. Hafez. But Rumi, I don't know anyone who's gone through all of it. Yeah, it's like entering one of those vast libraries that you see in the movies <laughs> with the sliding ladders on all it's, four it's sides. Cool. It's like, how am I ever going to get around? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it's totally like that. But that's a blessing too. I feel like it's a never-ending, you know, kind of fount of, of fun and wisdom and, and just interesting ideas that you can always <laughs> find something new. So what a blessing. And yeah. really I'm grateful to him for having done what he did and you know he started out as as a as a very kind of uh, uh i guess talking about systems he was really kind of in the system he was a teacher and a preacher of islam and okay. at some point when he meets his his inspiration his muse whose name was shams of tabriz uh that that meeting and that relationship really triggers something where uh from then on he never goes back to being a teacher and a preacher. He just becomes kind of starts becoming the poet that the world knows and loves. So speaking about kind of leaving the structures and the systems, I think he's really kind of the paragon of that as well. And, and yeah, and, and he, he just kind of really shifts in a very, very radical way into this kind of just expressive kind of freewheeling poet that the world knows today but before that yeah he, he really worked within the system he was yeah, he, he inherited a, a job from his father his father was a teacher and preacher of islam and when he uh, kind of got old rumi kind of took that over and he did that for about a dozen years until he met chance and that was the end of that business wow yeah I encourage people always to kind of get to know Rumi through Rumi and not necessarily read like biographies of him because biographies like history are always very subjective and they choose kind of what angle to kind of, uh, you know, put things in and what to highlight and what not to. So I always say, you know what, if you want to get to know Rumi, kind of just know, just read Rumi, just read his poems. And that's really the best way to know his true, his true being. But that you know that basic biography of his is just interesting to know that that's what happens to him that 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 pivot is an amazing thing i agree too that you know his they say history is written by the victors which is often the case but to sort through that truth is more often than not finding the art of a specific history or time period um that can give you an even more unbridled truth into what that time was like than a lot of uh, historical interpretations because, you know, they leave a lot of stuff out, whether intentionally or to cover something up or to make themselves look better. But art tends to, you know, depending on the genre, want to get down to the truth and, you know, even when you have photographs, 
Like, I think those are the most pure forms of capturing one of the most pure forms of capturing history. And even though film, I know you said you share a passion of film with me, even though film um, can be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sensationalistic and, uh, you know, something that we aspire to, uh, you know, escape reality, escape from reality uh, when we watch for two hours, um, the idea of escapism, which is, I think, mostly uniquely an American thing, but there are a lot of genres like, you know, Italian neorealism and uh, the American independent film movement and uh, all this stuff that you know cinema verite that really gets down to the to the truth of it without having that barrier of okay we're going to fictionalize it and so yeah i think but even fiction we can argue even fiction film to me if you look at it from the proper perspective really speaks so much and can tell you so much about the moment in the society where it was made right i mean that's true just to use the random example of the godfather as you were just talking about it the godfather may not be a a a direct and and truthful kind of expression of you know of of a mob family but what it is is actually a, a truthful expression of where american society was in 1974 right and what how we saw that 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 genre and that world and all of that, it can certainly speak to that in a way that I think is really amazing. I always say, honestly, Alex, everything that I do know about history, which is not a lot, but whatever I know about history, I learned through art history. There's no question about that in my life. All the actual history classes that I took in high school and college and all of that, really, I remember maybe not even 1% of it. But when I started looking at art history, it just really stuck in in me as as kind of a vision and a way to connect more directly with you know all the movements and all the different kind of periods in in human society it's an amazing thing to think about it's so brilliant and and yeah film history too i mean i i studied film at nyu and for a while and it was kind of just a highlight in my in my student life of just learning about film history and how it spoke to just the history of the world not just as you say through verite but just through just 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 giving me a sense of what what people were thinking you know in in the 40s 50s 60s 70s how they saw their own society how they saw history and how kind of they wanted to express themselves and be known and it's it's a brilliant thing it's an amazing thing Wow, so much. What, so when you were studying at uh, NYU. Uh, NYU, did you what was was Martin Scorsese at the time teaching his class? No, no, he wasn't. He had already come and gone. Uh, this was kind of in the early nineties, and uh, 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 we had uh, some you know, very well-known people in the world of film criticism. I studied actually uh, what what they called cinema studies. That was my master's. Uh, and cinema studies was not filmmaking. It was kind of theory and philosophy. And so we had a lot of people who wrote about film and film critics and film historians that came and kind of taught courses. And uh, I, I, it was an incredible experience for me just to get 
that like information. That. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the school. That's the top school. Uh, well, sure, no, and and I have my own critique of NYU, and some sure. things were not so great, but overall, it was just a brilliant experience. I had wanted also to kind of take more actual uh, filmmaking classes, but uh, under the under the uh, uh, kind of umbrella of cinema studies, they only let you take one or two kind of production classes. So I learned something about production, but I learned a lot more about kind of the theory and history of film. And yeah, I'm still grateful for that. Wow. You yeah. know, and another, you know, Armenian connection is, uh, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of Professor Hag P. Manugian. Of course, yeah. Yeah, he was Scorsese's mentor, you know, at, at NYU. I think he passed away in 1980, so yeah. he would have been quite young, yeah. um, right? Way before my time. A couple years after, yeah. Um, your family immigrated to the United <laughs> States, but yeah, he he's one of the... I don't know if he even still talked about at NYU, but I feel like he was. He was a little bit when I was there. Yeah, he was yeah. a little bit when I was there. I don't know about these days. Things have changed a lot since then. Who knows? Yeah. Right. I know Scorsese still talks about him in interviews. You know about his 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 influence on him. Uh, yeah. I think yeah, he at the time the the guy that was talked a lot about was Spike Lee because he had just kind of started to. To, to kind of make a name for himself. And yes. So we, we heard a lot of Spike Lee references. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another future NYU uh, professor on his free time. Yeah. 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 So, what, so, so what are you some, sorry. But, no, no, you, you go. You go. I was just going to ask, what are some of your favorite, favorite films? Oh, uh, my goodness. I, I have to tell you this year. The one film that I absolutely cannot get out of my mind from 2022 is Tar. I don't know if you've seen Tar. Yes, I saw Tar with Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah. well, I I left that cinema just kind of blown away, and for days and weeks, and even it's been now a couple of months, I can't stop thinking about it and reading about it and talking about it and recommending it to everybody. I think that that what Todd Field did was just magnificent i mean he he's i don't know what to say about it you know? yeah. writing it directing it you know just 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 conceiving of it and then speaking to a topic that is so kind of sensitive and 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 difficult and not you know not making kind of easy work of it not trying to reduce it in any way but bringing in all the different kind of angles on it but at the same time telling a story that's is not kind of didactic and has all of this kind of suspense in it and drama in it and and even humor in it and I don't know he he blew me away completely so I can't say enough about Tar I I really liked this year everywhere everywhere all at once as well I I loved that movie um, for so many reasons but I look at the scene when. Um, the daughter and the mother are just rocks and they're talking to each other. And that, that idea of oneness with everything, even inanimate objects, it really um, adds a new perspective to that, to that scene. And the so many iterations of, of people that they, they go through in, in the, in this, this universe. Um, Absolutely. It's so funny you mentioned that scene. Um, 
on Tuesday when the uh, Academy nominations came out and I saw that uh, this movie had gotten so much love, I immediately ran to my phone and I posted exactly that image on my social media because yes. it really says it all, as you say, it really summarizes the whole idea, animate, inanimate, whatever it is, uh, all of us are connected in a way that is timeless. So how many you know generations, how many centuries, how many incarnations apart, it still doesn't matter. That connection doesn't go away. And that movie I'm with you really speaks to that in such a massively kind of profound way, as fun and silly as it is in so many ways. It's also, I think, just deeply profound. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. That's so funny you posted that. Um, I'm, I'm also wearing, this is the Chunk shirt from the Goonies. Oh my gosh. I don't know if you remember Chunk. <laughs> it's uh, been a while, but now I'm remembering it. It's a funny connection, actually, because the, the guy um, who played Chunk became uh, an entertainment attorney. Right. And so um, when Ki Hui Kwan uh, got back into acting, he hired chunk as his entertainment attorney I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> when, there you go. when when the directors they call themselves the daniels so yeah. they share a first name when they contacted key they had they had to go through chunk to get to data <laughs> from the goonies and they yeah. were like this is just you know this is my childhood like repeating itself it was it was so surreal i guess yeah. for them <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's moments like that and stories like that and experiences like that that can also be kind of doorways and openings into exploring more how things are really connected in such a way just beneath the surface that we don't immediately always see. And once that, that connection comes up for air and shows itself and surfaces, we go, oh my God, wow. And that's a beautiful thing. It's really pleasurable to notice that and to experience that. But then even that can lead us kind of to realize that there's so many of those connections that are still happening. We're just not aware of them. They're happening just underneath our kind of visible uh, realm. And again, that's another thing that mysticism really points us towards, right? Just the word mystical, yeah. even though it sounds very, you know, esoteric and it can encompass a lot of different things. But the very notion of mystical is nothing more and nothing less than just looking for what is behind the tangible, immediately visible surface, right? The things right. that our senses perceive are lovely and beautiful and amazing and sometimes ugly or whatever. But right underneath that layer, the mystics tell us there's an entire realm that is endless and limitless and we can access it. But what we have to do is get a little bit away from the immediate sensory perceptions, right? Rumi says, close your ears and then listen, shut your eyes and then look. And that's really, I think, the greatest instruction to see with the eyes that are not tuned to the outside world so much, but the eyes that are tuned in to that inner world just beneath the surface. So again, not to get it too <laughs> esoteric and, and, and far away from the subject, but yes, examples like that are amazing, but there's so many, many more just waiting to show themselves. Yeah, no, I that's that's so uh, phenomenally interesting and um, increasingly 
relevant. I think it, his, so his name was Jeff Cohen, uh, is the right. attorney. I guess he got his break into the industry through Richard Donner, the director of, of, of the Goonies. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he was doing internships while he was, you know, um, also pursuing a career in acting. And I think he, you know, he grew up on Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges. And all of a sudden he said he had, you know, a new sort of, group of people to idolize once he got into uh law and realized the power of of what it can do when you pursue it for 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 good wow. um so i thought that was interesting even oh, his cool. even his you know that's i guess that's why he he became an entertainment attorney he could have been any other kind of attorney <laughs> but he wanted to stay in, in the industry you know and be, be close to it um and didn't he himself apparently consider also going into that uh, line of work at some point? I, I thought I read something about that, but then he kind of stuck it through. But yeah, I he, he I believe he might have. I know he did go to film school um, sort of after the roles were drying up for him, yeah. and you know he couldn't find work that I guess gave. Asian characters more agency and you know in the 80s and 90s uh unfortunately they were sort of used mostly as like kind of a a joke or a a side character or a sidekick mm -hmm. and um you know we're finally seeing a, a change in that thank god but he wanted to he went to film school and he wanted to work behind the camera and so he did that for a long time and i think it was crazy rich asians the movie that made him realize like wait i can i can still do this you know he always had that inkling in him and it was yeah. like well if i don't do it now 30 years later i might regret it yes yeah. so, and uh i often think about that just you know, trying new things, um, whether creatively or professionally, it, it's it's always a risk, but it's worth it. Uh, you know, uh, pursuing your passion or pursuing your dream, um, because for one, you don't want to realize, like Key was saying, you know however many years from now looking back and saying i could have at least tried or i should have done that and you know if the result is you tried and you you failed at least you can say that you tried it um so i love that sort yeah. of idea yeah um, hearing hearing that call and then heeding it uh are both really just massive gifts that we can give to ourselves right just listening first and seeing all right what is it that deep within me is kind of calling to me and kind of trying to guide me? And then once we acknowledge it and we hear it, then giving it space and, and, and following it, listening to it, go, going forward the way that it's uh, uh, encouraging us to do. 
and as you say, I don't think we can go wrong with that because worst case scenario, if it doesn't turn out exactly how we envisioned it, then there's no looking back. There's no needs to kind of you know sit there and go over the decisions and uh, end up with regrets or remorse or anything like that. But more importantly, also while you're following it, right, no matter what comes your way, will be able to kind of be incorporated into your work and into your passion and see your creativity because of that fact, because you are going in a way that your heart is asking you to go. A lot of times when we don't listen and we go in a direction that is not really, you know, that we're not being called towards from our core, then a lot of other things show up and we don't know how to process them. We don't know what to do with them because they're not really there ultimately for us, you know, and that becomes a much more difficult path forward because you just end up carrying more and more and more baggage as opposed to processing things as you go and kind of remaining light on your feet, so to speak. In general, I mean, so hard to say, you know, one or two things, but I have been a fan of uh, Kubrick's Shining for, for as long as I can remember. When I saw The Shining, yeah. I got really inspired to, to even kind of get deeper into film and understand more about cinema. Um, I just remembered this is now 40 or so years ago, and I was, I was barely a teenager, but... Uh, it was an incredible, incredible thing to just sit and watch the way that, you know, the images on the screen were kind of like uh, uh, coming at me. And, and I'll, I'll yes. never forget that. Yeah, that's, I think, a, a masterpiece. And, uh, you know, there's so much more. I love Hitchcock. I love, you know, I love a lot of uh, more kind of populist things. I think Moulin Rouge is, is is a great piece of art in so many ways. You know, it's not such song. high art necessarily, but I think it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful kind of fun thing to uh, just look at and to realize. I like things that are audacious generally, you know what I mean? Like yeah. when, when somebody comes and kind of just decides that they're going to do something, you know, that is unbelievable and unthought of and, and possibly yeah. impossible, you know, uh, the the Wachowskis I think are kind of in that world for me. You know when I uh, when I look at the works, the first Matrix and then Cloud Atlas, which is kind of you know it's it's got its faults, but Cloud Atlas just kind of is another one of those things where I sat in the theater and I was like, are they actually doing this? <laughs> like, no. did they actually decide to go there? And and yeah, it's it's amazing. So sorry, I could go on for days. No, no, I love I loved it. Yeah, I love hearing this. And and, and like the Wachowskis, Cloud Atlas. Yeah, it was so it was so ambitious. There was a lot of risk taking, and which I think you and me both share a, a, an appreciation for uh, filmmakers that take risks um, and narratively thematically but i was also blown away by cloud atlas and i, I think it's over three hours if i'm not yeah. mistaken and yeah. tar was also almost three hours too oh, now that i'm thinking of it but it yeah. went by so fast because it was so interesting it's like wow that three hours is up like that yeah. um, and that happens when you're enthralled in the world into the the character really it's a it's a character study uh and obviously Kate Blanchett is phenomenal in it but 
Yeah, I, I found myself thinking about it a lot too after yeah. I watched it. Yeah. Tell me what are your some of your all times? Well, I would say Edward Scissorhands without question is probably still my favorite film of all time. Amazing. I just love the um everything about it. I've I've written so much about it, but um yeah, I think I think um, that I think films that had an early effect on me were also um, Stand by Me, um, which was you know, a great coming of age film, but I think it was so realistic the way some some kids tend to interact, and it really captured that '50s era so so well. Rob yeah. Reiner has such a a sharp eye for that. Um, and then, you know, of course, anything Spielberg's done, I don't know if he's ever made a bad movie, but, you know, like The Goonies, um, E.T. and Poltergeist were like the three that I saw at a very young age. And Poltergeist, <laughs> it's rated PG and it's marketed as a family horror film. <laughs> But I had to sleep with the light on. (laughs) I mean, for so long after I saw it, because I was like, okay, this is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. (laughs) Somehow it still has a PG rating. And that's kind of the same with Jaws. There's so many gory scenes, but it's still got a PG rating. And I think it's just the idea of bringing families to the theater (laughs) and almost deconstructing everything they they think they know about the nuclear family <laughs> it's, it's in america yeah that's what that's what you call subversive right you get them yeah. in and you hit them with it basically it's really cool yeah so the, those films you know i i um are really influential um the 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 indiana jones movies um but once i saw edward scissorhands when i was 11 years old i think that's when i was like wow movies can be like this too um the combination of genres and the idea of um, bringing back not only gothic architecture but gothic music and um yeah, which were from two different time periods, but he combines them and almost Tim Burton almost created like the new wave of 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 like kind of gothic style. Yeah. Um, gothic literature is the third medium that he kind of combines into it, obviously, because yeah. it's very heavily uh, kind of a, a loose adaptation of Frankenstein. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, he, he managed to combine three time periods of Gothic work and different mediums into one film and make this uh, narratively ambitious fairy tale, for lack of a better word, uh, about a man-made man. And there's so many allegories, so many ways you can look at it. Um, I get something new out of it with every viewing. So cool. Yeah, yeah. It's so nice to have that experience of sitting uh, with a film for the first time and just, you know, ending up, as you say, in this kind of not just astonishment, but this 
an appreciation of, uh, about what's possible, you know, and, and it's so inspiring. And uh, yeah, you have Edward Scissorhands, I have The Shining. I hope everyone has one thing like that in their lives that they've kind of, you know, experienced and, and has made them get so just awestruck and excited and, and, and motivated maybe even to do something themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And speaking of Kubrick's shining, Mark Fisher, uh, the author and philosopher has a book called capitalist realism uh-huh. in, in which he sort of elaborates on, uh, Jacques Derrida's, uh, theory of ontology and it's this whole idea about how ontology is going to eventually replace ontology uh our sense of being um and especially mark fisher took it a, a step further and said in the digital age that we are in uh it's going to basically it collapses time and space and so it's this idea that we're disjointed in time constantly longing for a past that never was and envisioning a future that never will be based on um, past behavioral patterns and so he uses a really great example of how the overlook hotel is is sort of part of that idea of ontology like there are different elements from different time periods in the overlook and you know especially the obvious thing that uh in the end what was the line you 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 were always here or you never left uh and then it zooms in on the picture of jack nicholson and he's in like the 1920s and you're like wow it's really a great example that he gives of ontology, but I would recommend reading that passage. I think you can find it on the internet and it's, it's, it just shows you how a film can like that, such a masterpiece, The Shining can literally have new lives um, with more viewings and more perspectives. It's just, because it's there's so many layers to it and it's so rich narratively philosophically artistically it's yeah i have a i have a nine-year-old nephew that has been begging to be allowed to watch it Ooh, that's a <laughs> tough like, one no no yeah. no no yeah no nine is way too young but yeah. just the fact that, that he knows of it and he's interested and he's like can't wait to actually kind of check it out exactly speaks to your point it's had a very long uh, life uh this film and, and i'm so yeah. grateful for it the other one that i just thought of was uh uh, uh you interviewed uh, uh my god my brain sometimes just goes away uh power of the dog you just interviewed oh, Jake right. and, yeah, and that film also last year as i watched it really completely blew me away she's she's completely yes. a master somebody who just thinks about every frame every word every part of this story and how it kind of reveals itself and how it unfolds and how as a viewer 
she has me in mind and how I am kind of being brought in and kind of guided through the clues and the ideas. It is just unbelievable how she works. And I really appreciate her so much. I agree. I agree. I wish there was a Jane Campion film every year (laughs) that came out. Um, Was your path to getting your first book published, was it relatively easy or was it hard? Did you get, you know, rejections first before you got your first yes? Yeah, with the children's books, um, uh, we've published two and then the third one is on the way. And I say we because I have a uh, partner with the illustrator and we cannot uh, do this together. But uh, with the first one, yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, I, you know, tried very hard to find a publisher, sent it out, you know, uh, to all kinds of places, all those letters, all those, you know, uh, PDFs attached, etc. And yeah, ended up uh, mostly people told told us, you know, what we're not even going to look at it until you have an agent, right? Mm-hmm. And just like screenwriting too, you know, you, your producers won't look at it till you have an agent. Agents looks won't look at it till you're produced or etc. It's just this wonderful kind of uh, excuse my French clusterfuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. So that yeah, yeah for sure. hurdles. Yeah. And and so with the book, it was the same. And I, uh, at some point, just kind of, we decided to let go of that whole idea and just self-publish and, you know, kind of get, getting ourselves uh, acquainted with that process and uh, finally getting it out there. Uh, It was not easy, but it was also fun just to learn, you know, that curve. And so we ended up with the first one, uh, publishing it through Universal Center. So kind of self-publishing it, but through that imprint. But then with the second one, uh, we were able to uh, kind of get together with uh, uh, Seven Stories Press. And I think having had the first one out there and having that to kind of show uh, uh, as, as our work and something that you know, was kind of published and put out to the public and, and received some, some good kind of response, that helped actually find a publisher um so you know and, and that that has its own pluses and minuses publishing with an established kind of uh, uh publisher and uh working through their system but uh i'm happy that that happened with our second book which was called the donkey's gone and now with the third one i'm super super excited um because this one really if i may <laughs> it makes me emotional because it's really um uh, the thing that i really want to say to um kids of the world and i'm so so happy that it just is going to come out and i always tell my wife once this book comes out if i die the next day i'll die happy <laughs> just uh, because it'll be amazing. it'll be the thing that i really want to say and of course it's not really me saying it it's roomy but i just kind of you know uh put it into a language that kids hopefully can understand and relate to so that's that's really something i'm i'm super excited about Oh, that's awesome. So when is this, uh, I guess the three-part question, when is this book coming out? Yeah. How, what's the difference between translating for adults and trying to get through to children? You know, what changes do you make um, to, to access um, that younger demographic and make it appealing to them? And also, um you know, what is, is the, the, the message that, you know, you were referring to that this book sort of um, 
tries to to send to to children. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so the book is called "You Are Everything." Okay, and that's the message. I, mean, I can't say I can't say it's more succinctly than that, but it's really about what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. That that self of the universe right, is uh, who we all are ultimately. And once we recognize that, we will know that we are not alone, we are not disconnected, we are not separate from anything. And so that's really the message in, in a nutshell. But uh, it starts out kind of at the very beginning of the beginning of the beginning, and it walks kind of the reader all the way through the process to show them, uh, hopefully, that the truth of that idea. But... Uh, uh, the way that to your to your other question, the way that and it's sorry, and it's due out this November. So uh, hopefully that will remain. Sometimes it changes, but hopefully that will remain. And then the process uh, is interesting with adults uh, and and with just the translations that the collections of translations of Rumi that I have out. Uh, that's really the work is understanding the poem in the context, in the bigger context of what Rumi, I think, has to say, right? First, just reading the poem enough times and making myself so familiar with it and trying to get the message of it overall, and then getting the message of each line and each image and each word uh, uh, as best as I can, trying to understand that. And then the translation begins and trying to find the corresponding words and phrases that put that message across is probably the hardest part because when you're going from a language like Farsi to a language like English, uh, really between any two languages, there's a lot of uh, words and idioms that don't directly correspond, right? So yeah. you really have to sit and think about, you know, choosing the right thing and making it sound, you know, uh, not so weird and horrible just because you're using, you know, the closest uh, word to the original. So it's it's kind of an ongoing process, and I you know revise and refine uh, many many times for each poem. Uh, so, but it's really kind of a deep dive into uh, uh, the world of each poem and and trying to transfer it in a way that makes sense and doesn't sound completely odd. I don't, as I was saying earlier, I don't get so into making them sound poetic or flowery, all of that. There are some translators who do that, but for me, it's more about just getting the message as close as possible uh, expressed in another language as closely as possible. Uh, that's that's the way the translation books uh, come about. But for the kids, um, it's a really different process because what you're doing is you're really either retelling a story that Rumi himself told, but in a language that kids hopefully can understand. Or in the case of this new book, I'm making up a whole story based on an idea that's in a poem. So the poem itself is not a story, but it inspires me to kind of come up with a story that says what that poem is trying to say, but in a linear kind of narrative way. And so that is creative in a very different way, I would say. I didn't want, I was gonna say more creative and maybe that's true, but it's just creative work of a very different sort. You really kind of got to start from scratch and come up with a story that speaks to the ideas, but again, is is palatable to a four-year-old or, or a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old. Um, so it's a different process. And then getting it illustrated, of course, yes. is a big part of the fun with the kids' books, uh, sitting yeah. with my illustrator and 
talking about what image might express each part of the story, uh, segmenting, segmenting the story into, you know, usually it's, it's 16 panels and figuring out what each panel is going to look like visually and the details. And of course, she's an amazing artist. Her name is Sheila Shakuri. And so I leave a lot of it up to her, but we kind of talk about storyboard it, as you would say, in your world. Yeah. And she goes in and she kind of does, you know, does the artwork. And it's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. So these are like basically original short stories that are based on on uh, Rumi's poems, but you're, you're creating um, fictional stories, right? So you're writing your own, basically um yeah short stories with characters and uh you know a palatable linear yes uh, most of the time uh, with one exception which is that the second book uh it was based not just on a poem but actually a poem of Rumi's that's a story some of Rumi's poems especially the ones that are in, in his book called the Mass Navi they do take uh story form already right so for the second one it was adapting that story to uh, uh, the language that children might understand. And so we had to kind of move things around and yeah, create a couple of extra characters and all of that. So it was more of an adaptation of the story. But with the other two, yes, as you said, it is really kind of coming up and really creating a story from the beginning. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just looked up like similar artists, um, to Rumi, obviously, Hafez, you know, came up. Um, this is neither here nor there, but I noticed there was a there's a statue of Hafez in, in, in Tehran. Have you had a chance to visit that? Yes, I have actually. There's a whole uh, boulevard or avenue called uh, Hafez Avenue, and uh, it runs actually through uh, the neighborhood that I used to live in when I was a kid, kid called Yusufabad, so I kind of know it well. And uh, yeah, I've seen the statue. There's, uh, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> uh, the actual, the, the, the best uh, kind of expression of Hafez's energy though, I think is uh, where he's buried in Shiraz. Uh, it's, it's a place that I recommend everybody to go if they can. Just, uh, it's this outdoor kind of uh, uh, space with a structure built over where he's actually buried. Uh, and people gather from all over, you know, the country and people come from all over the world and they just sit there and they connect to the energy of Hafez and you walk in and it's just buzzing. I mean, it's just like you feel it in your body uh, in, in, when you're in that space. Um, they say the same about where Rumi is buried in Turkey, but I haven't been there, so I can't speak directly about that. Wow. Yeah. Um... And, you know, what What also came up is, you know, Khalil uh, Gibran. Yeah. Have, have you had it? Because that rang a bell to me because there's a statue in Yerevan, uh, <laughs> Armenia. And I, I think it was, you know, because he was born in under the Ottoman Empire um, in, in Syria. And so I thought his his history was extremely fascinating to me. Um, have, did, did you ever study him, whether it was in school or, you know, just out of curiosity on your own time? Yeah, the second case. I have read uh, The Prophet more than once, uh, his most famous book, and uh, it is a brilliant piece of work. Um, and it's one of those things that in the 
language of you know a 20th century kind of language really expresses a lot of those mystical ideas in a very beautiful and gentle and uh, relatable way. So I appreciate yeah, I appreciate what he's done. There's a lot of people, not a lot, but there's 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 number of people that have uh, kind of closer to our own time in the 20th and even 21st century that have really expressed uh, the same ideas in uh, Western language. One of my favorites is Alan Watts. I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Watts, but oh yeah, <laughs> he's, he's absolutely a brilliant, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And everything that he wrote, everything that he taught, everything that he lectured about, uh, I, I eat it up <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, like popcorn or like gems and jewels. He was, he was one of those that really took these ideas and brought them over here and didn't spoon feed them, but, you know, expressed them in a way that was both kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? Humorous yeah. and, and palatable and understandable by a more modern kind of sensibility. And uh, I really appreciate Watts and people like him who have put their whole lives on, on that. I've had, you know, this, this really massive kind of effect on the world. Uh, another one is uh, Mr. Krishnamurti, Jindu Krishnamurti, who was another brilliant kind of uh, purveyor of, of these mystical ideas. Um, and there's many, many, but yeah, Gibran also, he was a great man, sure. Wow. And speaking of Alan Watts, a lot of his ideas are, I think, incorporated into the Spike Jones movie, Her. Yeah. Um, and he even had a, not him per se, but he, he appeared as a character as, as himself. Um, I think it was when um, Theodore and... Um, his AI go on vacation. Uh -huh. um, and so it's really, she's sort of distancing herself from him as she's becoming aware of all these different philosophies and sort of opening up her world. And she begins to have these, um, I guess they would call it uh, book clubs in the digital space. And so eventually She's like, here, meet my friend, Alan Watts. And it's, I think it's voiced by Brian Cox. Mm -hmm. But I, I think a lot, I love the, a lot of the ideas and, and, and that movie about how, um, how she perceives time and space different to, to human beings. Um, it's fascinating to me. Um, and I also saw that world as kind of a post-capitalist utopia at first, but then I realized it was maybe a post-capitalist dystopia because <laughs> everyone seems to be lonely on their phones talking yes. to AIs, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I have to tell you, especially the last uh, couple of months where suddenly it seems like uh these ai apps have exploded into kind of the more public sphere uh i'm watching it with interest and seeing kind of where it's going but also with a lot of let's say concern because <laughs> this yeah. could go a lot of different ways and some of those ways are not very pretty for sure <laughs> so yeah i'll see 
Yeah, no kidding. It's a uh, we're entering in a new age. It's almost like I want to say uh, a fifth industrial revolution in the Western world. You know, the the onset of AIs and what what that's going to bring to our society. Um, but yeah, it's it is. It's really a little scary. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I always kind of uh, think about the idea, again, going back to the idea of structure uh, uh, and, and the big superstructures. For me, uh, recognizing that these superstructures were really built by us human beings is comforting because I think that we can, we can also be the ones to bring them down, right? Absolutely. When it comes to AI, it gets a little bit more complicated because if, you know, 20, 30, I don't know, maybe even 10 years in the future, uh, you know, social structures start to be built by AI, then we're one kind of big, huge step removed from their creation, ultimately. And so what will it be like when it's time to bring them down? And there's always going to be a time to bring them down, right? That time eventually yeah. comes, right? So when, when the time comes to bring those down, what that's going to be like and how difficult it may end up being, uh, is part of what kind of concerns me as well. So again, can't project too much, but it's it's something to watch with uh, with care, I think. No kidding, because then we're at the behest of, of their ideology, yeah. uh, you know, that wasn't built by uh, human beings necessarily, but by sentient yeah. beings nonetheless. But like, how can we take down a structure that wasn't built or conceived by us, which is, yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting thought. It I mean, also reminds I me have like, to say, I have to say that I keep trying not to flash back to the beginning of Terminator 2. I mean, I really try to keep that sequence out of my mind because it's the one that keeps coming to me. I'm just like, no, no, no. Let's, yeah. let's, let's envision a different direction for this. Let's not let yeah. that become, you know, the way it goes, but sorry, go ahead. No, I know it's it's so true, and like, um, so many people have been, you know, like Stephen Hawking was super extremely uh, cautious, um, and basically warned us about AI, um, and various writers, you know, like Philip K. Dick, his, so many of his works have been adapted into movies. That's also about you know, the ramifications of creating artificial intelligence. Yes, uh, I don't know sure. if you've ever read a Philip K. Dick book, but it's, Absolutely, a, yeah. it's a journey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, fingers crossed and, and best, best of hopes uh, is all I can offer really. And, and we will see, but it is, it is possible uh, for this to also become more utopian than dystopian and i keep putting yeah. my energy to to envisioning that and hoping that that's the way it'll go so yeah i i think her going back to her i think it ends on a very positive note yeah you know because there's no conflict or uprising between the AI and the people. They just all leave and they go to this world that we can't really conceive yet. And yeah. it's, you know, connected through love. She tells Theodore, like, if you ever get there, 
um, you know, to this space that I've found, um, you know, will be there forever together. Um, and love. And if, and if, if becoming sentient ultimately or fully sentient means ultimately discovering love, right? Right. Um, becoming aware of love, then I think there is a lot of hope, right? For that, for, for how this thing will turn out, right? If that's really the key to all of it, then, and if it's possible for something that starts out as, you know, a bunch of, you know, metal parts and wires and all of that to eventually end up recognizing what love is and really kind of discovering that within you know themselves then there's i think a lot of hope uh the thing that i think most concerns me lately especially these last kind of few months is how this is going to affect kind of creativity right so we human beings we're really the biggest thing that gift that we have is our power to create right yeah and especially when it comes to art and arts, again, I use it as broadly as possible. It covers a lot of different things, but when it comes to creating arts, for example, that is something that is so nuanced and so multi-layered and so, I think, an essential aspect of what it means to be a human being, right? The mystics tell us every human being is an expression of a divine, but an expression that is in itself very, very unique, right? And if what we call the divine or God is the creator, then each one of us is also a creator in our core. That's really what defines us, right? And so if we start kind of uh, outsourcing the creativity also to the AI, which I'm seeing these days, you know, <laughs> uh, examples of, and it's, and it's amazing, right? Immediately when, right. I, when I look at this artwork that the AI created, or actually uh, I saw a uh, screenplay treatment that uh, was created by an AI and it was damn impressive. I don't know if you've wow. seen it. But damn impressive, Alex, let me tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I see that, I start to think, all right, well, if we outsource that and from that out, then what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to create? Are we even going to lose that 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 ability or at least lose sight of that ability and even just let the creation happen by something else? Then what are we, right? What, what do we end up as? So again, not to put too negative a spin on it, but these are the kinds of things that I lose a little sleep over sometimes these days. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I it's funny you mentioned Shakespeare earlier because I, that quote came to mind while I was trying to go to bed last night. And it was, I think it's the time is out of joint. Um, and that's used as um, basically an example of hauntology, which, which we talked about. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's in Hamlet but it's also uh, the title of a Philip K. Dick book, you know, connecting the dots here to what we've talked about. Sure. And it's just, I feel like with the creation of AI, we might be coming even closer to ontology replacing ontology. And it's so esoteric, uh, the, the concept of it, but um it all started with being an artist um you know cowboys in the wild west 
uh, you know, were sensationalized in dime store novels. And that was, you know, Cowboys and Outlaws. That was kind of our first obsession that we idolized. You know, Robert Ford was had a, a shoebox of all the newspaper clippings and dime store novels of Jesse James, who he eventually uh, assassinated to try and basically obtain the same legendary status and, and, and fame that that James had himself because he felt inadequate compared to that idealized notion of him and then it evolved to actors when you know the movie picture came basically during the end of the wild west era and the beginning or the late stages i would say in a lot of ways the beginning of this second industrial revolution in the 1890s um and that opened up a whole new door for for obsession um but going back to hauntology it's basically you know the concept that technology makes information media icon icons um and simulacrum-esque imagery you know events historical figures and the exponential increase in the dis distribution of language that have always been so distant in space and time in history um instantly available all at once um mm -hmm. we're in that age and so um it's it, it, it's it's scary to think about that because it, it, it's um i don't think it's very good for for mental health for one and it kind of uh scares me Sadek Rahimi in his book the ontology of everyday life he says the very experience of everyday life is built around a steady stream of ghosts and uh it's anyways I I, I thought that that is sort of either a product of late capitalism or a product of the interregnum that we're in of yeah. what these philosophers warned against yeah yeah it's it's a really complex kind of topic as as you're talking about it i'm thinking about uh, its relationship to to uh the mystics and what they were talking about um to a certain extent uh there is this idea in mysticism that reality itself is a simulacrum right that ultimately being physical, being in time and space is an illusion or a dream that consciousness is having, that source is having, that, for lack of a better word, God is having. So, and it's having all of these dreams at once. It's having, you know, 7 billion human dreams, right? Uh, 7 billion dreams of being each one of us all at once, going back to that movie again. Uh, but that's kind of uh, an idea that you come across in mysticism. And so, if we look at it that way and we say that even what we call real, right, it is real, we can't say it's not real, but compared to truth, compared to source, compared to consciousness, in relation to consciousness, it's a simulacrum, it's a dream, it's an illusion, right? And it's a beautiful illusion because then we get to do, to do all these things in it, we get to create into it, we get to uh, 
pretend that you are somebody different than me so that we can have a conversation. And that's an amazing thing because otherwise I'd be talking to myself all day long, (laughs) (laughs) which definition of insanity. But so that, that already, that idea is there. Now, if we are creating a whole world of simulacra within this reality, right? It's like, you know, the bubble inside the bubble inside the bubble. And how many layers in are we going to go before we lose completely track of what's outside of the bubble, right? If you think about the Truman Show, for example, right? Amazing movie. Imagine if Truman, right, being inside that bubble now creates another bubble and goes in there and then creates another one and goes in there. And so how is he ever going to come out of the sequence of bubbles that are now that are now containing him how is he going to shatter all the different layers that's going to be a much 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 bigger kind of process so in that sense i think uh it can be uh even scary or just very kind of off-putting to think about how many you know wormholes are going are we going to enter into before we decide that wait a second part of my work is to actually come out of the wormholes, to come out of the bubbles, to come out of the simulacra, to even come out of reality every so often and see, you know, from the perspective of source, which is beyond reality, which is beyond the three-dimensional world. Uh, So I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go, but we'll see. Yeah. It's so, and it's so fascinating and relevant that you bring up the Truman show, because that is a perfect example. And also it's like, you know, he had his own superstructure within a larger superstructure of society that he was always already in. So that's, you're saying, you know, a bubble within a bubble. And that's actually the logo of my podcast is a, like an animated version of me in that last scene where he yeah, yeah. after he discovers and it's the, the title is even in the same font as the poster oh wow i didn't notice that That's yeah amazing. i got a re- very good graphic designer to do that and put my my face up you know true <laughs> up, and then he takes a bow and it's like he oh. could have reacted so uh, and so many other ways to discovering that his life was all a false reality. But instead he was just like, well, you know, he repeated his, his famous line in case I don't see you. Good morning. Good afternoon. And good night. And uh, then took a bow to everyone who was watching and just accepted it, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love that ending because it really shows us what's possible uh, when we do kind of break through, right? It's possible to break through, but not carry forth all the possible resentments and angers and regrets and remorses and everything else that we could carry through with us once we break through. But what's the point of breaking through if you're going to carry all this baggage with you from the old life, from the old world, from the old reality, right? Exactly. The whole point is to leave all that shit behind and really see what you know this new space holds for you. And that really, uh, I think, uh, is true for uh, that that idea on any level really works, right? Whatever it is about our lives, about our individual lives or collectively as human beings, whatever it is that we unattach from and break through and leave behind, can we also not carry so much of the vestige of all that with us necessarily, you know, whether it's, you know, an old relationship that I break through or whatever, or whether we, as humanity, 
break out of you know late stage capitalism uh how much of the emotional baggage can we also just leave behind and not let that drag us down as we kind of enter into the next phase of of human evolution i hope that we can be like truman it's definitely a, a beautiful idea to think about me too me too and that reminds me of her that i feel like everyone in that society in that post-capitalist society was carrying the emotional baggage of what became before you know it was just some let's say there was a revolution or some kind of peaceful transfer of uh, of ideology from the ground up from ourselves up to the you know political structures that uphold society political and economic and socioeconomic structures that uh you know uphold our ideology that seemed to be created in some vanguard far away from the LA that Spike Jones was envisioning. And these people were still carrying the baggage of, you know, the, the society before this society. And it was, that's so it's interesting that you bring that up. Wow. I always try to find film examples for, for everything. Um, yeah. And they're out there. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. And, you know, speaking of, uh, the idea in mysticism that we are all connected as one, every being, everything in the universe. So I would say for me, and this could be controversial, but I believe that it, it, it's statistically impossible that in the vast galaxy, we are the only living beings in it. So I do believe that there's some intelligent life out there. I don't know how, you know, if it's at all similar to how they depict a lot of these, you know, aliens in the movies, um, whether they're going to be malicious trying to take over our planet for resources, or they're just going to try to make contact for the sake of, you know, uh, connecting with 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 another species so i don't know your thoughts on that does mysticism include potentially is it up to the interpreter you know if it includes other life out there and other galaxies so what's fascinating is uh to me that there's no i mean as far as i've read there's no direct mention of of uh you know literal life forms uh, other planets and galaxies, but what's fascinating is the very awareness uh, that there are other galaxies. I mean, 800 years ago, uh, you know, most people thought, you know, very differently about our place in in the universe. There's not even there wasn't even a concept of you know such a vastness of space and all these other stars and planets out there. Uh, it was a very kind of insular vision of of ourselves over here. But then you read, you know, mystics from that time, you read a poem by Rumi that says, you know, like a hundred thousand suns and galaxies. And, and, and then you're like, damn, this guy had an idea of what's out there for anyone and, and how that's possible, you know. And again, I don't want to get too literal about it, but on some level, I think we've always known that we are living in a, 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 a great, vast kind of existence where 
comparatively, our little planet is tiny. It's a, it's a dot. On some level, we've all known that. And I'm with you 100% that uh, just statistically, there is no way, there is no way that it's just us. It's impossible. I mean, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous to even think that way, to me anyway, with all due respect to people who do. Yeah. So, but, but what's great, just uh, to bring it back to movies for a second, is that we've told ourselves this story for a long, long time, right? The story of connecting with a life form that is not of, of this planet. And uh, as far as I know, we really covered a huge gamut of possibilities, right? Even though there are some, you know, kind of ideas that repeat, right? The, 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 the dudes in Close Encounters kind of have become a really uh, uh, repeated motif in a lot of places as to what these creatures are going to look like. But there's all kinds of ideas, not just about how they're going to look, but about what attitude they're going to have, what intention they're going to have. Uh, what this connection is going to look like between us and them. And I'm happy about that just because it leaves the possibilities on the table so that we don't just vision it as being one thing. Because if we did, if we only thought about, you know, war of the worlds as the only possibility, then it's more likely that we would end up in a war of the worlds, right? No matter who showed up and when they showed up, we would already have this very kind of uh, uh, warlike kind of, uh, attitudes towards them that would be likely to translate into some, you know, conflict. But if we're yeah. open to the possibilities and we've told ourselves enough stories that also include, you know, peaceful and meaningful and fruitful encounters, then those possibilities can also kind of come true. And that's that's where my hope is. And hopefully, hopefully sooner than later, Alex, but we'll see. I know. <laughs> I know that you know the Pentagon's already released the all their UFO findings uh so there's something unexplained about that and yeah. you know hopefully during David Duchovny's lifetime I hope that you yes. have to see it happen. for Mulder and Scully yeah <laughs> it's been so wonderful speaking with you uh you know, I really appreciate your your time and 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 sharing uh, you know so much insight into Rumi mysticism and you know uh, our mutual passion for for film as well. Um, so it's, it's my pleasure and absolutely my honor, and I really appreciate uh, all of your wisdom as well, and really the enthusiasm and the clear kind of curiosity that you have is is very very inspiring and i really appreciate that cheers to you alex cheers almeida take care and uh best of luck with your class and that's a wrap on the episode thanks so much for listening to my conversation with omid arabian hearing more about uh, his translations of rumi as well as his Universal Center, which I hope to attend next time I'm in Los Angeles. And keep an eye out for Seb Ohanian, producer, screenwriter, director, extraordinaire, on the next episode. Thanks again for listening, and this is Alex signing off. Yeah.